You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is February 22nd, 2024. It's 7.38 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I thought that I would talk a little bit about householder practice tonight. We've been focusing a lot on the attachment aspect of things, but part of this is also the meditation aspect of things. Uh, And uh, I get quite a bit of uh, inquiry into how to organize a householder practice, how much to practice, what to practice. We have set it up so that uh, if you take one of our classes, we have uh, a, a, med- a group of guided meditations, which we call Always Cool, Always Kind. And uh, it's 90 hours of guided meditation. In the beginning, there's 20 hours of basic meditation instruction. So if you're just beginning on the path, um, that explains the basic techniques um, see, hear, feel, and it explains the uh, investigating self-generated emotion, stopping afflictive self-generated emotion, quantizing the pool of poison and pain, and also the heart practices. Our approach is a metavipassana approach. So uh, meta or loving kindness stands in for the uh, Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes, loving kindness practice, compassion practice, sympathetic joy practice and equanimity practice. Um, And then on the Vipassana side, Vipassana means to divide and to see clearly. Uh, That's where we we pull apart the sensing experience and how that sensing experience comes together to form conceptual reality. So we talk about this in terms of ultimate reality, which is the pure sensing data that comes in through the various sense gates touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind is the other aspect of that. Mind is actually the thing that selects what your attention focuses on uh, so that you can grab that mind moment or that sensing experience. In a combined metavipassana way of practicing, the intentional development of positive states is wrapped up in the exploration of how uh, we create the experience of self and world moment by moment. Um, One of the things to understand is uh, in pulling apart the way that you experience yourself and the way that you experience the world, what we're trying to get at is the uh, conditioning that creates the meaning threads that we attach to the sensing experience. So let me break that out a little bit. When we sense things, we're grabbing uh, data, really. I like to use that word, a sensing experience. But it isn't fixated or formed or assigned any particular meaning at that point. This is pre the self-experience, which knows conceptual reality. 
And that that sensing experience is then organized for what needs immediate attention, what um, doesn't matter whether we get to it or not. And then is there time and safety for pleasant experience? And then once that's ordered and put into the queue, as each sensing experience reaches the top of the queue, it's compared to the perceptual database of previously uh, defined sensing experiences. So, um, and what I mean by defined is that the meaning for the sensing experience is attached to the sensing experience. That when the body-mind recognizes a particular pattern of sensing uh, and attaches uh, a thread to it, the thread is the meaning of that sensing experience. And then it rolls into conceptual reality, which is the perception of self and world that the selfing experience actually knows. So that sense of the conscious self knowing what's happening is at the end of the line, really, of this process. And what we're trying to do is uh, be present for the way in which we do that so that we can see the meanings that we're assigning to things. I think particularly being Western and, and being influenced by the way uh, Western philosophy has unfolded over the millennia, we tend to think of uh, our perception of what's happening as an accurate reflection of what's happening. And in the Buddhist uh, understanding of uh, uh, reality, it really is not what's happening, but what what's happening means to us. The, the um, definitions that we've assigned to it. And because everybody's conditioning is different, everybody is assigning a different meaning to what's happening. And since we don't operate on what's happening, but what it means to us, uh, we're each operating in our own unique experience of the present moment. That's what we're uh, trying to get at. And the reason that this is an important adventure is because we're assigning meaning. We're, uh, and we can assign a wide range of meaning to the experiences that we're having. And so you'll begin to notice that if you assign uh, an afflictive uh, meaning to the experience of the present moment, uh, and you catch it in time, you can reassign a different meaning, to evaluate it in a different way, so that when you form the intention to take an action, which is part of this whole process, and then you take that action, you create a more skillful karmic thread One of the things about getting things wrong, particularly in relationship to other people, is we can skew our reactions to what's happening and cause damage uh, to the relationship, sometimes irreparable damage to the relationship because of the a meaning that we give it, <laughs> not tracking that uh, the reaction that we have in the present moment is uh, coming from meanings that really aren't what's happening in the present moment. So when we organize practice, really at the beginning, what we want to make sure that we are, we've are we developed sufficiently is enough concentration to hold the technique 
well enough to have the insight that the technique is meant to provide to us. So you tend to have the experiences, the meditative experiences uh, that are uh, associated with the kind of practice that you do. You practice in one way and you have one set of insights. You practice in another way and you have another set of insights. I typically teach Theravada um, practices, so the original Hinayana version of uh, Buddhism. And those uh, techniques tend to produce experiences around self and no self, um, primarily. Uh, if you know your Buddhist history, Bodhidharma um, went to carry uh, Buddhist practices into China and Chan was developed there. And then that migrated toward Japan and Chan in Japan became Zen and Chan then went into Tibet. And when it uh, went into Tibet, it became Vajrayana. So the third turning of the wheel is the Tibetan practices, the second turning of the wheel is Chan and Zen. And the first turning of the wheel is the Theravada practices. When the um, Muslim hordes uh, invaded India around 700, they destroyed all of the Buddhist monasteries. And so that first turning of the wheel really survives more in South Southeast Asia. And a lot of the original texts of uh, the Theravada Buddhism survived only in the monasteries in Tibet. So um, one of the things about Buddhism moving through the different cultures is that it, it's been adapted by the culture. It's an interesting thing to understand in the way that so much of the meaning that we assign to things, uh, which we'll, we're exploring in meditation, uh, has a cultural origin. The, there's a utility to that, to learning the nature of culture, because all of the things that uh, we use uh, society-wide to get along and to organize uh, the daily uh, um, survival stuff, you know, food, clothing, shelter, medicine, uh, comes uh, to us through the, the learning of our culture. Uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, as my mother would say, because the culture teaches us how to use a wheel. We don't have to reinvent fire. Our culture teaches us how to use fire. Uh, we don't have to uh, learn to grow our food. Our culture teaches us how to acquire that. So the first part of practice is really developing sufficient concentration that you can run a meditation technique well enough to have the insights that would come from using that technique. Sometimes in the ordinary course of life, you develop that. I know uh, in working with people, uh, people who spent time developing uh, some kind of athletic practice uh, in uh, childhood and young adulthood, uh, even uh, older, already have the capacity to concentrate. But a lot of people don't have the capacity to concentrate well enough. I like to define things so that uh, you you can use the that metric in order to 
determine whether you have it or you don't have it. And uh, in traditional practice, we would call this access concentration. So you're able to concentrate well enough that you can enter into a jhanic state or you can enter into an insight practice and track what's happening. But you don't have to go into the uh, jhanic states. Um, uh, that level of concentration is more than what you really need for that. So what I use as a metric is the ability to anchor your attention to uh, where you're tracking the breath. So this is a breath counting strategy. Tip of the nose, opening of the mouth, back of the throat, rising of the chest, rising of the belly. And you're able to track in and out the sensations of the breath for a period of 10 minutes without getting caught up in thinking even once. That would be good enough. We use a counting strategy to monitor that because the mind can easily pull you out, return you, and smooth over the absence so you hardly notice it. But when you're not really paying attention to concentration, you come in and out of uh, the present moment and the mind doesn't pay so much attention to that. So counting uh, the breath up and down to 10 at the end of the out-breath only for 10 minutes without getting caught up in thinking once and losing the count. So you'll notice in the guided meditations that we've developed, we use the counting strategy as a way of uh, priming the meditations. One of the things also to understand about householder practice is that we're, we tend to get scattered pretty easily because of all of the different inputs and all of the different things that we need to attend to during the day so that one way to organize a practice is to begin each uh, period of sitting on the insight side of practice with a breath counting or some other concentration practice so that you settle the mind in and then go into the insight practice. In a metavipassana practice, we're balancing the heart side with the insight side. One of the things I think it's important to understand is that we have uh, the capacity for negative experience and we have the capacity for positive experience and they're pretty separate and we need to develop both of them. We're uh, obviously coming uh, and the interest is to reduce our suffering but we also have to attend to increasing our capacity for positive experience so that we can balance it. So, and I think uh, if you, uh, how's, how do I put it? Um, if you don't have the capacity to treat yourself kindly pretty much all of the time, then half of your practice should be heart practices centered around the self until you can get to a place where if you drop glass and it breaks, the mind doesn't chastise you. It says, be careful cleaning it up so you don't cut yourself. So that there's a real kindness in that. We get habituated to regulating our experiences often by uh, sharply critical self-talk 
And we need to undo that and move it toward this constant flow of positive reinforcement coming from ourselves so that we move from being uh, an antagonist to the self-experience to being uh, delighted in the self-experience. Believe it or not, uh, even if you've had a lifetime of that very critical inner voice, it doesn't take that long to shift it over to the positive side. We're really talking about months of practice, not more than that, if you do it in a, in a dedicated way. Of course, we're all running around and, and engaging in all of the things that we have to engage in. So the idea then would be how much time and when do you get your meditation practice in? And this is going to vary, I think, depending on how you are, really. Everybody's different, of course. For me, it's right in the morning that makes sense to do it because I'm not distracted by all of the other things. And when I'm awake and present, and uh, I begin the day by doing it. I think that uh, as a householder practice, uh, as a standalone householder practice, there should be some uh, more intense uh, practice periods embedded in it. But uh, basically, uh, uh, 25 minutes or 40 minutes in the morning is a good amount to do. Let's say six times a week, so you, it's not like an, a relentless pressure to do this but to organize in that way. Um, the guided meditations that we have in our system are 25 minutes long. Uh, and if you wanted to extend that, what you would simply do is uh, after the guidance and sit for an additional period of time. You'll notice that if you develop a regular practice, the uh, also a, a sense of what the minimum is going to be uh, so that you have the effect of the meditation, um, which tends to be a, a more balanced, more equanimous uh, view of the experience of each day. And you can adjust it in that way. The beginning of practice is, of course, learning the techniques that you use, but the techniques in, of themselves are not uh, what we're uh, intending the exploration using the techniques for the insights that we think are helpful to really understand the, the nature of this uh, human condition that we're uh, living in. So once you've developed the uh, basic techniques, then you begin to apply them to investigate the nature of experience. In Vipassana, then, uh, you can use uh, maps. They're called Dharma maps, which would uh, direct you in how to explore. We do um, these three areas of practice, investigating self-generated emotion, stopping afflictive self-generated emotion, and aquatomizing the pool of poison and pain as preliminary practices. Um, what we want to be able to do is resolve uh, 
any of the psychological issues, I'm using a Western term to describe that, any of the, uh, to attend to the barriers for progress on the path uh, to enlightenment first, so that the obstacles are out of the way, and then we can just go uh, straight off for the deeper practice. One of the things that I think is really useful in support of deep practice is to put around yourself a support group of people. And in order to do that, you have to figure out how to be in relationship to other people. One of the things about Western practice, which is I still think is true, but maybe as practice gets more mainstream, is that uh, people uh, who come to practice have uh, already bombed out on a lot of the, the Western practices that are meant to do that and find themselves suffering uh, and not finding relief in uh, traditional Western practices. And, and uh, it, if you look at a bell curve, usually it's two sides of the bell curve. On one side of the bell curve, people don't function very well and they have a hard time managing. Then you have all the people that manage well enough, and then you get to the other end of the curve of people who manage really well really able to uh, define and meet goals um, and consistently uh, do that. But find uh, in doing that a lack of meaning, that primary sense of meaningfulness, where the activity itself is the thing that provides a sense of meaning or fulfillment in life, not the secondary exploration, which is really about the gathering of time, energy, and resources in order to survive in our society. Um, so part of this is the development of mentalization. Part of it is uh, the development of emotional regulation. And part of it is understanding how collaborative relationships are supposed to work so that you can reformulate the agreements you have in the relationships you currently have or establish new relationships that work in a collaborative, mutual way that support your capacity to explore what is going to be meaningful. I think that deep practice is one of those things that provide meaning uh, and fulfillment in this life and an understanding of the nature of, of what all this is, but that it can be uh, disruptive if you go too quickly into that without establishing that support first. So that's kind of how we've organized it. Um, after the preliminary practices, uh, sorry, after the basic practices, we call them the basic practices, the next piece is um, the always cool piece, which is the 84 meditations, which take you through an integrated uh, metta vipassana practice, the purpose of which is to develop mentalizing skills and also to develop emotional regulation skills. And then once you get through that, the always kind piece at the end are 56 guided meditations that take you through the loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity practices. Um. Because I'm a Theravada teacher, 
and, and the the main map that we use uh, in the Mahasi style of practice, most of the techniques that you'll uh, learn around here are based on Mahasi. Mahasi filtered through Shinzen really is how I would uh, describe it. Um, we can use uh, the the map that Mahasi uh, talked about, which is called the progress of insight, which will take you through a series of insights into the nature of this experience and the way that we formulate it. So 16 stages. Each of the stages uh, suggests a particular uh, meditation practice to have the insight associated. Once you discover the insight, you move to the next stage and gradually move through the whole map. Enlightenment in the Theravada way of practicing is a four-path model, stream entry, once-returner, non-returner, and arhat. So these um, central Buddhist ideas of reincarnation and uh, the cleansing of karma is really what that path takes you through. But being a little simpler about it, really what it is, is to understand the nature of the human condition that we're in, the nature of how we make and uh, participate in the realities, these conceptual realities that we create, and to come into a place where we are not suffering particularly because we don't cling to uh, the experiences as they come and go. So the nature of impermanence is part of it. Everything comes and goes. Suffering comes from clinging or grabbing onto the sensing experiences as they arise that we want to hold on to, resisting the sensing experiences and the the reality that we make from them that we don't want to experience. Old age, sickness, and death, of course. We live in a body, doesn't last, maybe you've noticed. <laughs> when I sit with a group of people that are, are, are in the 20s and you, we start talking about aging, they have zero clue <laughs> what we're talking about. But uh, uh, with people who are a little bit older, you begin to get the sense, and then, of course, the older you get, the more that process accelerates. To the point where you actually can conceive that this isn't just going to keep going. I think it's hilarious. In the West, we're so good at the denial of uh, death, and yet it uh, it's so influential in the way that we understand things. Every moment is lost. How do you adapt to that happening over and over again in a way that doesn't uh, cause you a lot of suffering? I was talking to uh, one of my students and she uh, had understood uh, enlightenment to mean that uh, all suffering would be relieved in this life. And actually... Uh, I don't think that that's actually what it means. What it means is you don't, you're not so bothered about the ordinariness of the suffering experience of the human condition. 
but uh, as you're enlightened, particularly when you reach the third stage where you're a non-returner, you're not reincarnated into the human realm, and that actually is how the suffering ends. So we don't get to a point in practice where uh, that uh, the conditions uh, that it is to be human don't apply to us anymore because we've reached uh, such an I know uh, when I first came in, what I really wanted to do was uh, never have another problem. That was the, the motivating uh, energy around the, the or the, the goal of practice. And so I think that in the beginning, of course, we come in and uh, particularly those of us who are enlightenment oriented come in and think uh, enlightenment is going to be this. Uh, Shinzen said about that, uh, and I, I really think it's the, the best way he's described it, or the best way to describe this particular thing. Uh, enlightenment is much, much better than anything you could have thought of and not nearly as good as what you did. It, it, it's both of those things. So in the beginning, when you're learning the techniques and uh, organizing these uh, beginning uh, explorations, it's less important to have a community, and it's less important to have a teacher that you can uh, bounce things off of. But as you move into the middle uh, part or into the, the deep end of practice, I think it's important to embed yourself into community and to find a teacher that you can relate to. One of the things about a teacher is that you want to find somebody who talks about these things in a way that you can understand pretty clearly without having to transliterate that much. So somebody who's languaging and whose uh, way of describing things and whose experiences are um, close enough to yours that there isn't a, a, a big... Um, disparity between the way that they describe it and the way that you experience it. Uh, so much of what the uh, experiences are uh, that we're looking for uh, can be confused or misappropriated uh, that uh, somebody who speaks too far away from you isn't going to be so helpful. Fortunately, there's a lot of different people around uh, who are uh, teaching, and so you can move from community to community and find somebody who's useful. The way that I used to do it is to hang out with the community of students for a while uh, and to see how they uh, respond to the teaching, see if it's effective in the community uh, before taking on the teacher often uh, it can be um, seduced by a, a kind of charisma that uh, some teachers have. 
And if you go with a teacher that has no charisma, it's sometimes harder to stick around, <laughs> particularly when it gets too bumpy. Uh, it's a challenge to do that. Now, there is also um, the idea of not much practice and uh, frequent or regular retreat practice. One of the particular things about this period of time is that COVID has knocked out a, a lot of the possibilities for retreat. And uh, most of them have not come back, but, uh, but are beginning to come back. So that's something to consider. Whether or not the householder daily practice is sufficient to provide deep insight is a question. Um, oftentimes we suggest that you go on retreat so that you can have extended periods of practice and, and uh, come into those deeper insights that tend to be available when, you're, when you have a period of concentrated practice. Uh, and so in a perfect world where you're able to maintain your practice in between retreats and go frequently to retreats, two, say, or three a year, something like that. Um, do both. Um, but if you had to choose, I would say the retreat practice is probably going to be uh, more helpful in terms of these kinds of understanding. Now, I blithely say go on two or three retreats a year, but I understand the extraordinary nature of how privileged that statement is and how that is simply not possible for most people. And so the householder practice really is, in some ways, organizing this. Maybe the possibility for residential retreat uh, isn't available to you, but you could do commuter retreats or some kind of online option. One of the advantages of COVID, I think, that was created was these uh, extended practice online events that you can join. Um, I actually tend to prefer those because it's my bed, it's my food, it's my routine. Um, I don't have to uh, struggle with uh, different uh, aspects of that. Uh, I, I'm, I don't sleep well away for the first couple of nights. And so uh, then with a long uh, retreat schedule, that the exhaustion that can come that then interrupts the capacity to concentrate and practice happens. So. The food isn't uh, <laughs> good. Uh, I bet on some retreats where <laughs> the food was actually really not good. The accommodations were not good. So that was uh, actually unhelpful rather than helpful. So in the very beginning, just to wrap it up, talking, uh, developing concentration so that you have a sufficient level of uh, concentrating. In the West, really, uh, most of the time we, we don't or hadn't taught concentration specifically because 
most of the meditation instruction that you would get was on retreat. And so the uh, long practice periods would help you develop that concentration. Um, I taught for years uh, at a meditation center in Los Angeles, and uh, nobody in that community really went on retreat regularly enough to develop much of the way of, a, of concentration. And so I began to teach the concentration practice in the way that I do. So you would talk about a drive of asana practice as uh, uh, insight practice without a specific concentration practice and wet uh, vipassana practice as insight practice with an intentional cultivation of concentration. And then uh, on the loving kindness heart practices side, a wet meta practice would be uh, the intentional cultivation of uh, positive emotional states. Uh, and the dry vipassana practice would be the use of the uh, heart of uh, practice objects uh, as concentration objects. So uh, just to parse that, in our meta vipassana, it's a, it's a dry meta and a, a wet vipassana. That's how we, we tend to practice. So uh, organizing, whether you're going to do uh, daily sits or a few days a week sits, how long the sits are going to be, it's a declarative. So you make the intention to sit those number of times for that length of time with that technique. Uh, the advantage of guided meditations is you just go down the list of guided meditations on a daily basis, and that's all uh, resolved. Then figure out what your retreat practice is going to be, if any, and, and uh, make sure that you're attending those regularly, hopefully. And then find a community to embed yourself in so you have a place to dialogue about it. Most of the time, people that are not uh, regular meditators do not have any insight into what actually could happen, what actually uh, you experience. And so being part of a community that's practicing opens that up. And then also uh, finding a teacher who you can dialogue with regularly so that you can make sure that you're progressing. There's a lot of sort of tangential spaces that you can explore that don't really lead toward uh, deep insight. So why don't we do some uh, practice, some Vipassana practice, and we'll, we'll start off with some breath counting and then uh, do a basic uh, see or feel technique. All right, let go of the meditation. Comments, questions? Christian? Um, for the concentration, I I noticed like I'm thinking, I'm having arguments with people, but I'm still counting. So like... Is your attention still on the breath? It's it's like they're in the back, kind of. or I, Probably not totally. Um, 
So it's you're not attempting to stop any of that from happening. You're just wanting to be able to place and sustain awareness of a particular aspect of the overall experience. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we can get pulled too far into the counting. Um, it really is though the breath sensation. So if you can maintain the breath sensation with all of the rest of it going on and a little bit for the count. So reverse the sensation and the counting, then that that's good enough. Okay. Yeah. I, I also noticed that like during the Vipassana portion, sometimes with noting feel, I can actually follow my breath in a much deeper way than during the counting. Um, so I don't know. That just kind of struck me. Push more into the sensation. Okay. Yeah. That's the object. So let's see, tomorrow night at seven, we're doing another uh, workshop on how to date like a secure person, even if you're not yet secure. Uh, that should be fun. It's kind of lively. I like it. Saturday, we're doing the third in the three-day series of meditation and addiction. We'll be covering uh, the aspect of disorganized attachment and then also talking about how to uh, repair that. Um, we're going to do another level one in April uh, on, the, on the Saturdays that's coming up. Um, we have uh, a 15-day residential retreat in Poland, which is going to be May 11th until May 25th. And then I'm doing a four-day commuter retreat in Utrecht, which is in the Netherlands, uh, and that's the uh, 28th through the, the 1st of June. Then we'll start another level two, I think, in uh, August coming up. So that's the next part. If uh, it's a Metavipassana retreat, so the first uh, eight days is, uh, uh, I know it's a 15 day retreat and the math is going to be a little uh, dicey, but the first eight days are meta and the second eight days are. Uh, Vipassana on the retreat. Uh, the retreat is with the with Phil Jordan's community uh, in Europe, and we only have five spaces in the retreat. So that if you're interested in that, uh, put your name on the waiting list. I think you can register for the Utrecht retreat now, uh, or there's a waiting list for that as well. Uh, that will be. There's more spaces for that. 15 or 20. Anyway, that's what's happening. Thank you so much for your practice. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, I offer the teaching freely, um, but if you're able to make a donation, that's appreciated. It helps support me in the work that Better Group is doing. Uh, I hope to see you soon at one of the things that's coming up. Bye.